Hello, everybody, and welcome to the live Rebel and Be Well podcast. My name is Krista Rimel, and I am the host of the Rebel and Be Well podcast and the founder and CEO of the Point Retreats and the Point Retreats Rentals. I want to start off by saying thank you to the Great Northern Festival for inviting us here for Mel to Malcolm Yards for providing this great space for us to podcast today. And a special shout out to Stokeyard, Shaylin, if she's here listening, and John. They are the ones that invited us in to do this podcast and share a couple of great guests here with all of you as you seek to learn more about sauna and cold plunge and cold thermogenesis therapy. So I want to introduce our speakers here with us today because we're really fortunate to have both Thaddeus and Dr. Mike here with us. They're two individuals with brilliant minds and exceptional knowledge around the topic of sauna therapy and CT therapy. So we're going to start our podcast initially by talking more about sauna therapy and the benefits of sauna. And then we're going to move into cold plunge therapy, cryotherapy, and cold thermogenesis. So that's going to kind of how this will break out today. But I'm going to start by saying a big thank you to both of these gentlemen here to my right who are great friends and well-respected colleagues. And just to share a little bit about each of them with you, I'm gonna start with Dr. Mike here. Dr. Mike T. Nelson is a research fanatic on all things metabolic. So if you have any interest in improving metabolic health, he is your guy. Um, he has his PhD in exercise physiology and a lot of other acronyms, a lot of other degrees. Um, I'd encourage you to look at his bio on the Great Northern Festival website. To the right of Dr. Mike is Thaddeus Owen. Um, Thaddeus is a chemical engineer. He is a global manager at Miller Knoll and an expert biohacker with the company Primal Hacker. And if you want to know what a biohacker is, I'm pretty sure he'll tell you somewhere along this conversation. So a big thank you to both of you for being here with me today and taking time out of your Saturday to share your wealth of wisdom with everybody here in this crowd. And to all of you that are here listening, I just want to say thank you for being with us today. I am going to mention one other unique thing about Thaddeus Owen. And so Thaddeus just completed um, his first book here, which is actually really um, ties in really nicely to what we're talking about here today. So this book here, The Ketogenic Hibernation Diet, really talks about a lot of the concepts around winter wellness, which I would imagine everybody here is interested in, and how everything from light, sauna, cold therapy, um, and diet and nutrition can really support improved winter wellness. So I'm sure Thaddeus will interject a few pieces um, that you can find here in this book. You can also find it on Amazon or at his website, Primal Hacker. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the first segment of our podcast here around the health benefits in sauna therapy. So Dr. Mike and Thaddeus, I tend to spend the majority of my time, probably like most of us here in the winter, at a really beautiful 68 degrees. Like my house is 68 degrees. My car was probably more like 70 degrees driving here. And in this building here, it might even be like 72 degrees right now as the sun is on my face. So can you tell me a little bit about how this really comfortable, consistent temperature may be harming or helping my health? Um, so one of the main things is that humans are what they call homeotherms. So they have to hold 98.6 degrees. I actually didn't even believe that number. So I looked it up. It's actually 97.7. But hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we have all these adaptive systems where if you go out to a sauna, 
Yeah. You can sweat, you can get rid of heat. If you go into cold water, you can kind of create a little bit more energy. Yeah. So humans want to stay at that 98.6 <clears throat> and your body has systems that will regulate that. Okay. But it's adaptive for what they call adaptive homeostasis. So mm -hmm. homeostasis is a baseline of what you want to get to, but we know that you can be better adapted at heat. You can be better adapted at cold, but the body responds to any stimulus that's placed on it. So if you're always at the exact same temperature, it's going to be harder to regulate when you go into a warm environment or a colder environment. So okay. if you go to like a nursing home and my grandma was alive, she lived to 101 mm -hmm. and we would go visit her. It was probably 76 degrees in there all the time. Yeah. And she's wearing a sweater with a blanket right. because she can't keep herself warm. Yep. Because over time, if you're at that same temperature, you lose the ability to start to regulate your body. Okay. So I think you want to build up a kind of a buffer zone mm -hmm. of adaptation, both to cold and to heat. Yeah. So that when you're exposed to a wider range of environments, your body can still hold that temperature. Okay. Thank you. That is one sentence into the podcast and you already called me a name, Mike. <laughs> I have to look up. <laughs> Homeotherm. So, okay. So um, I agree with almost like everything you said. And I would only add that we're so used to living at basically 72 degrees. So you think about in the summer and everyone has their air conditioning, condition the air to 72 degrees because we don't want to be hot. And then in the winter, we heat everything up. We use the remote starter on our car. We have heated seats. We have heated jackets. We go from the garage to work, to the grocery store, to back home, to the gym. And like, maybe we spend two minutes outdoors in the winter. Yeah. And Mike's whole thing, like you have this metabolic flexibility from food that we eat, but it's also, I think your latest thing, Mike, that I learned from you is like metabolic flexibility in terms of the temperature you're exposed to. And if we constantly stay at the same temperature, most of us living in a Northern environment have these ancient pathways in our DNA that are activated only when we get cold and those pathways help us maintain optimal health. So we can talk through like there's this adaptation to increasing the amount of brown fat that our bodies hold. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, well, why would I care? And we used to think only babies had brown fat, mm -hmm. brown adipose tissue, like BAT. And this brown fat is more metabolically active. The more brown fat we have, the more healthy and, and the more longevity we tend to have in the studies. Yeah. Yeah. But all the research shows that only babies have it. Because after you're a baby with all this brown fat, we stay at room temperature for the rest of our life and we lose all the brown fat. Mm -hmm. When we allow ourselves to get cold once in a while or hot, like in sauna therapy, that flexibility of flexing the stimulus of heat or cold mm -hmm. allows us to gain brown fat in our adult life mm -hmm. or keep the brown fat if we were babies born with it. Mm -hmm. And that leads to better outcomes for our health and lifespan. Okay. Thank you, Thaddeus. So this topic around stress and burnout is a big topic right now for people both personally and professionally. From what I hear you saying then, in theory, could you use extreme temperatures, either hot or cold, to help really improve your stress resilience? Is that true or false and why? Uh, I would agree with that, right? So the, the fancy term is what's called adaptive homeostasis. Mm -hmm. The bigger you can build that buffer zone across different systems, like temperature being one of them, my bias is you're going to be more resilient to other stressors. Okay. So one of the things they've done is what they call preconditioning, right? So you did a lot of cardiac stuff. Mm -hmm. 
it's well known they have something called cardiac preconditioning. So everybody knows that aerobic training tends to reduce your risk of myocardial infarction or a heart attack. Well, like, well, how, how does that work? So during exercise, the heart cells are actually just a little bit depleted of oxygen, okay. but not enough to cause any damage to the cells. Mm -hmm. But the cells then go, uh-oh, this idiot's going to go out and do exercise. We're going to have less oxygen, so we better get more prepared to handle that situation if it happens again. Yep. So you go out and you stress it again, you get a little bit more adaptive. So if you have a heart attack where part of the blood flow or oxygen is cut off to those cells, there'll still be some damage, but the cells that were preconditioned with exercise will do a little bit better because they're a little bit more robust and they're able to handle those stresses. So it's the same idea if you expand that to the whole body. If you're exposing yourself to heat, you're exposing yourself to cold, you're kind of preconditioning yourself to be a little bit more robust to handle more of those different stressors as they come in. Hmm. I love that parallel between using, um, you know, any kind of thermogenesis therapy in the same way, kind of in that same wavelength as you would use exercise or training, right? Yeah, so it's like, just across a different system. Yep, yeah. Thank you for that, Mike. Yeah. I'm sorry, Thaddeus. I, I was just going to say, aren't, Mike, aren't you also creating like these heat shock proteins, whether you're doing cold or hot? And do those, and this is my question to you, like do those heat shock proteins help with that adaptive part of getting hot and cold? Yeah, so the mechanism is through the heat shock proteins, which you're correct. There's these little chaperone guys in the cell that detect outside stressors. These could be chemical, these could be exercise. And it's the body's way of taking the outside environment mm -hmm. and translating it to an internal signal so your body knows what's going on. So there's heat shock proteins, there's cold shock proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, heat shock proteins, for example, are activated by heat, they're activated by exercise, they're activated by other stressors in the body. And you're correct, that's part of the adaptive mechanism. So like in my mind, you've got like the science part of it, which yeah. is like, there's all these chemicals and this mm -hmm. physiology, like it's almost like you're doing alchemy when you do cold and hot because mm -hmm. you're creating new chemicals mm -hmm. in the body that weren't there before, whether they're being released or produced mm -hmm. by the adrenals and by the brain. So if you talk about like alchemy, you're taking a substance and you're mm -hmm. creating something else from it. Mm -hmm. which has a different frequency and a different vibration. Mm -hmm. So when you allow yourself to get uncomfortably hot or uncomfortably cold, you're creating alchemy in the body. And often with cold, especially like it was six degrees below zero outside mm -hmm. today, try going out there in your shorts. We were in towels this morning going outside mm -hmm. and uh, my wife wanted me to lay down in the snow at right. six below zero. <laughs> yeah. I don't usually do that, but I was yeah. like, okay, we're going to do it today. And that stress, so to me, like you're stressing your mind, you're stressing yeah. your body, and you're creating these new chemicals that then tell you, just like when you're getting too hot in the sauna, yeah. that you're not going to die because yeah. you got through that whole adventure yeah. and you came out the other side. So the next time you go to do it is less stressful. So even without creating heat shock proteins and XYZ chemicals, I think that you're still training your body mentally to understand that that stress is acceptable to you and it reacts less um, with less cortisol and stress the next time you do it mm -hmm. so that 
it's almost like you're adapting even just from the mental perspective, mm-hmm. not even mm-hmm. the chemical. Right, right. So I think there's like those two aspects. So it's like general broad life stress resilience training by using both the heat and the cold. So, I mean, those are those are healthy stressors that your body has the capacity to adapt to, which then in theory helps you have a better capacity to be able to adapt to other life stressors. Okay, so in terms of looking at it from a more medical lens, so Mayo Clinic and Hospital Healthcare System, which most people here in Minnesota are very familiar with, puts out a publication called Mayo Clinical Proceedings. In there, they validated and cited that saunas can reduce blood pressure, improve cardiovascular health, um, mitigate and um, decrease risk of neurocognitive disease. It can decrease pain. It can decrease pain from arthritis. It can reduce risk of dementia. I mean, the potential health benefits like go on and on and on. And there's so few things in medicine that can have an impact on so many different um, body systems. And sauna seems to be one of those few. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like physiologically, what happens in the body when you are in the sauna? And then do you ever see sauna therapy being prescribed by clinicians? Either do you hear about that now or do you see that coming in the future? Yeah, you're correct. There's a ton of benefits to sauna therapy. You can look at a lot of the main studies are from Finland. So if you've ever been to Finland, I've been there a couple of times. It's amazing. Pretty much everyone has a sauna and it's just part of the culture to go do sauna. Like some people have a sauna in their house. They've got a sauna at their cabin. They go in the sauna, they go jump in the lake, they go back in the sauna. Um, They've showed up to like 40% reduction in mortality. So risk of dying. So it is a powerful stimulus. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is you do get some similar adaptations to aerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. So if you put someone in a warm environment, one of the things that happens is their plasma volume goes up. Okay. So kind of the liquid portion that's kind of circulating around in the blood Mm -hmm. that goes up a little bit higher. So that is a benefit for exercise. It's also a general benefit for health. Uh, Heart rate tends to go down a little bit. Stress tends to go down because again, like that is the saying too, you're putting a little bit of stressor on the body, but it's a temporary thing. And then you're going back just like exercise. Okay. So you stress the body a little bit and then you go back to where you were before. Um, the only downside I would say of the studies is that most of those studies were conducted in people who didn't do a lot of exercise and were generally not super healthy to start with. Okay. So I would still say exercise is probably better. Mm-hmm. But if you said, should most people be doing a sauna? I would say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the reality is from a prescription standpoint, if you're a physician, getting someone to do a passive therapy where it's like, hey, you just got to go sit in this hot environment for 10 minutes a day to start. Like, I don't have to move around. I don't have to do anything else. No, just start there. That's probably a way easier entry point than getting them to do some formal exercise. Absolutely. Easier to do a sauna RX versus an exercise prescription. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of, you know, well-validated benefits from it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, in Finland, do clinicians prescribe sauna therapy or is it so embedded in the culture that it's like they don't have to because everybody's doing it? Yeah. As far as I know, they don't really prescribe it. Okay. But... There's some very interesting studies. They did one study on patients who were, I think, class two or maybe even three heart failure patients with sauna. Yeah. So the fact that that got approved by whatever the IRB board is in Finland to say, hey, you know, this is okay, Mm -hmm. that would probably never get approved in the U.S. Yeah. But to their culture, it's like everybody does sauna. Old people, young people, it's just like what we do, and we don't see much risk factor with it. So it's studied a lot more. The first time I went there, I stayed with my sister's host family. Yeah. And they were in northern Finland, like an hour south of the Arctic Circle. So they had the sauna outside. 
and she had a hole cut in the ice all winter. And I asked her, I said, well, what, isn't that like feel horrible going from the sauna like into a cold plunge right away? Mm-hmm. And her answer was, yes, but you'll feel better. And if it doesn't kill you, it'll just make you stronger. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I said, what's the other key? She's like, wear socks so your feet don't stick to the dock on the way out. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Practical <laughs> advice is useful, right? Yeah. yeah. And she was up every morning, religiously, like every morning. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And that was just like, wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. She's like, yeah, that's what I do. For them, it was like their morning coffee. It's yeah. just part of their routine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Sauna, as most people know, like the word itself is Finnish mm-hmm. and it means bathhouse. Yeah. So originally, like, so in Finland, there's 5 million people and 3 million saunas. Like there's wow. a lot of saunas. Wow. But it's not traditionally just a Finnish practice, right? Because right. bathhouse, bathhouse everywhere. Exactly. So it's like all over Northern Europe, Korea, mm-hmm. Japan, mm-hmm. Russia, um, Russia, the Druids would use it. Yeah. Um, and like that ability to have the sauna everywhere yeah. was so embedded in their culture that they had like imbued it with mystical practices. So they, they would say like, when you go into the sauna, you get like a mystical or spiritual benefit because you're mm. cleansing yourself. And it's mm. almost like a rebirthing process for some mm. people, which is why in Europe, they only sauna naked because you don't want to bring energy from your clothing and from the day and from all those other people mm. that are clinging to that mm-hmm. into the sauna practice. It's mm. like a rejuvenation um, mm-hmm. practice for mm-hmm. them. And so then clinically, I saw a really interesting study from 2019 So it's like, have they prescribed it clinically? Is there research on like some of this use? Right. And there's this like in the biohacking world, there's this sauna detox protocol because a lot of people use sauna for detox. Mm -hmm. And I've always been suspicious of like, if this protocol is like completely made up and like fake or if it's like a real thing. So the process is that you take niacin, the flushing kind of niacin that brings like your, opens your blood vessels and sends a lot of, um, nicotinic acid, I believe is the compound itself through your bloodstream. And it looks like you have a sunburn. Like if you get the flushing okay. version right. of nice. It feels weird right. as hell too. It feels really weird. <laughs> have you tried this? Yes. Okay. So you'll, you'll take like this flushing niacin yeah. and it'll feel like you have a sunburn and it'll look like you have a sunburn. Huh. Your body gets red. red. Yeah. And then you do 20 minutes of exercise or yoga and then get in the sauna and sweat with your, you know, blood vessels super dilated and you supposedly like detox way more of like, and you can only, um, in the sauna with sweating, you detox heavy metals, phthalates, which are not detoxed through many other pathways, bisphenol A, that BPA compound and pesticides. So a Mm -hmm. lot of things you can't get rid of other ways. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, it's just some kind of a biohacker, like made up and Mm -hmm. N equals one, or like someone experimented on themselves and said, everyone should do it. Well, in 2019, they did a study on army soldiers with Gulf War syndrome. Hmm. So people that were over in the first Gulf War in the 1990s Mm -hmm. that were full of heavy metals, depleted uranium, pesticides, um, pharmaceuticals, everything that they burned when there was like burning fields Mm -hmm. of everything. Mm -hmm. And these people were really toxic and they had a lot of issues. They gave them niacin, had them work out for 20 minutes and put them in a sauna. And there was an actual difference between the people that did not sauna and take niacin and the people that did to the point they had better mental outcomes, better mood, and they did detox. Yeah. So like 
it's a 2019 study that was published that actually proves like the niacin biohacking sauna yeah. uh, protocol really works. Really works. So interesting. Yeah. And that brings up kind of the next um, topic I wanted to ask both of you about where locally here, I mean, we're in the Minneapolis area and I was recently um, informed about some research occurring kind of right in our backyards in St. Paul, right? So um, recently, I think within the last 18 months through a certain foundation, they have provided um, infrared saunas to all every firefighter in the St. Paul area because the International Association of Firefighters has reported that 60% of career-long firefighters passed away from cancer. Hmm. Which, as I started to read the research, it's like, okay, well, of course, they are exposed to all kind of carcinogens, right? Like all the time, repeatedly, over and over, and toxic substances that most of us will never see in our life because most of us don't go into burning buildings and fight fires. And so they were looking at how could the infrared sauna re potentially reduce the risk of incidence of cancer. Um, and this research study is going on currently. So they're collecting, you know, urine and sweat 24 hours a day from firefighters who after being involved in fighting a fire, go and shower, and then they go and sit in the sauna and they collect, you know, all of their various body fluid samples. And, and the main um, physician leading the study is hoping to release his results next year. Um, so far indicating it's very beneficial and therapeutic, but I'd just love to get your thoughts and like theorize this with us. Like how could this not only apply to what the firefighters are hopefully going to benefit and experience, but, you know, other, and I know theirs is mostly like direct toxin um, exposure, but let's be honest, like today we're all pretty impacted by a lot of different toxins in our environment. So like how, you know, your thoughts on, on this for the firefighter community, the first responder community, but then also like, how do we apply this to us as like the average human living in a world that has probably more toxins than there were 50 years ago? Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are it's cool that they're actually studying that because there definitely needs to be a lot more science around that area. Yeah. The the pro and the con is that almost everyone can use detox to sell anything mm -hmm. because it's like, how do you verify what it is? And like that is to saying what compound, how do you know you were exposed to it, et cetera. Right. So that unfortunately makes it harder for the average person to figure out, is this like a legit thing or not? Yep. Um, but like what that is to saying, there is good research to show that the only way some toxins are eliminated is actually through sweat. Mm -hmm. So sweating, like some of the guys I work with, they have a detox procedure that involves having the person sweat a lot four to five days a week. That could be exercise, could be sauna, just to get out some of those things that are in there. Yep. Um, you'd obviously do specific testing before and after to see what's actually uh, released. Yep. The other thing I've wondered about too is that a lot of toxins are stored in fat. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, you may have to be in a caloric deficit okay. to liberate what's called lipolysis to break down some of that fat yeah because if you think about what your body is trying to do it's like hey let's say we were exposed to something that we know is a toxin right your body's going to try to either detoxify it get rid of it somehow yeah and if it can't do that it's probably going to store it into fat tissue because okay. it's going to try to keep it as inert as it can mm -hmm. then there's a debate of if you release those and you don't do some sauna like some people i know would say if you're doing a legitimate detox program, you probably have to do sauna because that's the only way you can get some of those toxins out once you start releasing them from uh, fat cells and that type of thing. Ah, interesting. Good point. So, yeah, so, so would I think that it's increase useful. your oxidative stress then if you release the particles but didn't actually have a way to remove them from your body? That's one of the theories, right? Okay. So a couple of guys I respect in the field, one of the guys said that 
if he has someone do like uh, fat loss diet and they have a fair amount to lose, especially if they think they were a firefighter, they were, you know, veteran or something like that, where they were right. probably in an environment where it's known exposure to, to compounds, yep. that he will have them do a specific detox protocol, which usually involves sauna, involves a lot of uh, heavy sweating yeah. because they're going to release some of those compounds that were stored in the fat tissue yep. and sweating a lot of times is the only way to get some of those compounds actually out of the body instead of recirculating them, have the body be exposed to it again okay. and try to have to shuttle them back into fat potentially. Sure. Okay. Great answer. Thank you. There, you know, there's definitely people that, so when you're stirring up toxins in the body and you're releasing them from the fat and from the tissue, you're sweating some out. So one of the keys is like when you're sauning, they always say like, have a towel and wipe all that sweat off as soon as you keep sweating. Cause otherwise mm -hmm. you're reabsorbing a lot of those toxins mm -hmm. or getting them all over the bench that if it's your sauna, you're going to sit in the next day. Right. So you want to get rid of those toxins as they come out, but some are getting liberated inside of you. So there's some theories of, should you take binders mm -hmm. into your body before you sauna? So they absorb the liberated toxins and get them out of your body rather than let them being reabsorbed to the cells. Yep. I don't know how much validity there is to taking those binders. Maybe Mike can talk to it. But my thought on like the cancer that we were talking about, I don't know that we're really good at knowing what causes cancer. There's certainly like the International Association for the Research on Cancer, IARC, and they list certain things as carcinogenic. But the more we know about that, the more people keep getting coming down with what we call cancer. And I think a lot of it is emotional and you can detox all you want, mm -hmm. but if you don't detox these stuck emotions, mm -hmm. you're still going to be susceptible to some of these diseases or diseases. Mm -hmm. So my opinion of sauna is like, it's cold outside. Right. You can go sit somewhere really warm and feel really good and you're detoxing and sauna has been proven to boost your mood. So if you're boosting your mood and it used to be considered this mystical experience, yeah you do get magical benefits from the sauna, better mood, higher immunity, uh, better cardiovascular system. So you're getting all these great benefits that in and of itself without the detox may reduce your risk of cancer. Mm -hmm. So I think regardless of whether they're measuring detox, I think the sauna is really helpful for a lot of those disease states. Mm -hmm. So even purely because it just feels really good. Right. We'll return to Rebel and Be Well in just a moment, but first a few words about our sponsors. I want to say a special thank you to everyone at Self Esteem Brands. We are grateful for the recording space and support you have provided to our podcast platform and team. You can find more information about Self Esteem Brands in the show notes. We appreciate and savor every sip of Dry Farm wines during our podcast conversations and every event at the Point Retreats. To find out more about Dry Farm wines, find their link in our show notes. Thank you, Paddle North, for being our preferred Minnesota-based brand and company. We honor every memorable paddle. To find out more information about Paddle North, find their link in our show notes. The Point Retreats and Rentals is situated roughly 30 minutes outside Brainerd, Minnesota. The property's private peninsula boasts over 1,500 feet of stunning shoreline spanning three lakes on the pristine whitefish chain of lakes. Whether you need time to renew, reset, or reconnect, we have a space that can host your family, group, or team. Click on the show notes to find out more about the Point Retreats and the Point Rentals. Social wellness, loneliness, social isolation, which all of us have experienced probably in a greater magnitude than maybe 
at least within the last century of, of you know, life, right? So these last couple of years have held a lot of that for a lot of people. And they say that one third of U.S. adults 45 and older would, are reporting being lonely. One quarter of U.S. adults over the age of 65 are reporting a significant increase in social isolation. Well, here's what we know about social isolation, right? It increases your risk of mortality and diseases like dementia and many, many others. So can you talk a little bit about then how this concept around a social sauna experience could impact health, you know, either from um, improving optimal health, disease reduction, or, you know, that whole concept around longevity? Yeah, I think it's super useful. I mean, the some of the studies show the risk of social isolation is almost on par with cigarette smoking. It's like massively high. Mm. And it's something, yeah, it takes work, but people can do something about. Um, again, when I was in Finland, we were there for a grip competition. So the guy who was hosting it had us over to his house two nights before. So we're there like, you know, drinking, eating food. And like the guys had their sauna time because they're all buck naked and the women had their sauna time. But it was very much, they, when I was there, they have like the kind of solitary practice they'll do on their own. But like in the evenings, a lot of it was like very social. Hmm. Like it was just assumed, like he's like, hey, it's sauna time. And like, so all the Americans are like, oh, we don't know if you want to go. It's like, oh, you have to go. You come do sauna now. You come now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but it was like a huge social yeah, thing. Yeah. And so we had like, we were crammed in like sardines in the sauna because it was like, oh, everyone has to go into the sauna. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. It's a uh, very a social thing. Where in the U.S., it's not quite so much. Even at the gym, like, if you're in a sauna with someone else, you kind of stare at the other guy. And, you know, it's just, right, right, it's kind of right. even feels weird. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think if you could have it as part of a social element. And there's also people doing hard things together, like in groups, I think is extremely impactful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sauna can be difficult, too. It doesn't always have to be. Right. You know, but, you know, there's going to be some difficulty there at, at times, too. You're putting your body under a stressor. And right. if you can do that in a group environment, that's probably going to be even better. Yeah. So everything is energy. Like if you break down everything, we're frequency and energy beings. That's mm -hmm. how our bodies stay together. That's mm -hmm. our incarnation here on this matrix that we're in. And so when you isolate and you give someone like black scrying mirror phone to look into or black screen television, you miss this energy interaction with other beings around you. And that energy gives you new pieces of information that our body reads at a very subtle level. So that isolation is very challenging because that's not really how we are designed as beings to be. So when you bring people together, even if you're all staring at your phone, not as ideal, but you're still reading that information and visible energy from others that gives you a sense of like, I'm here with someone else doing this thing and we both did this hard heat or cold, whatever it is. There's a huge benefit to your biology to doing that, that I think we're only at the infancy of measuring. Mm. In Europe and especially Northern Europe, but really all over, even in Rome and Italy, they had sauna bathhouses just like now you have the japanese bathhouse and the korean bathhouse it was all over europe and it was sauna it was sauna it was cold and every single day the entire community came to the bathhouse and they talked politics and they talked about the news of the day and they got together and gathered and it was a social communal thing and that's how you brought in the wisdom of the elders 
And we don't do that anymore. And even in Europe, that practice went away when really like the Catholic church and organized religion said like, this is a mystical experience that we don't really approve of. Right. And it totally took a back seat. Yeah. And I think now, like with what we have here and, and Hewing Hotel and Stokeyard, yeah. like it's starting to come back. Yeah. And we can look to to places like Finland and Northern Europe where this is a real magical experience that we benefit from and everybody can do it. Like everybody can sit down, you know, in a warm place and relax. You don't have to be like physically fit or super smart or whatever it is. Like everybody can partake. Yeah. It's beautiful. So can you tell either one of you, and I'm going to start with Thaddeus, being that he's a circadian um, expert, circadian rhythm expert, and uh, often speaks on this topic, you know, how can the sauna benefit your melatonin production? And can all sauna types do that? Or does it have to be a specific sauna type? Okay, so for those that don't know melatonin, a lot of people um, are familiar with melatonin, but not everyone and others with serotonin. So serotonin is like this they say, which is not totally accurate, but like the feel-good brain chemical. So you have people on anti-anxiety and antidepressants called serotonin, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. And they stop, supposedly, they stop serotonin from being converted in your body to another substance. So more of it stick, sticks around and makes you supposedly happier and in better mood. What serotonin becomes later in the day is melatonin, and melatonin is known as a hormone of darkness because the body is stimulated to release the produced melatonin after it experiences darkness. You experience darkness and your body releases melatonin to the bloodstream. And the research is showing that it can help clean up damaged cells and especially damaged mitochondria. Um, it's also potentially responsible for sexual reproduction, for metabolism, so your craving for certain foods, for insulin regulation and blood sugars, so lots of great things melatonin does. Most of us are destroying that produced melatonin at night, so how do we either produce more of it or keep more of it around? And the question is, can sauna, whether red, infrared, Finnish sauna, steam sauna, um, incandescent light saunas. There's so many varieties now. Can any of those at night, as Mike has seen some experience with, benefit melatonin? And is that responsible for some of the health benefits? And I honestly have no information on whether sauna benefits melatonin use other than one person who was measuring melatonin levels in their own body. And their evidence was infrared light at night on their chest was releasing more melatonin than when they did not use the infrared light. Can you talk a little bit about these three things along with Asana? So caffeine, alcohol, salt. I'd say caffeine could go either way. So coffee itself isn't really that much of a diuretic um, unless you're just pounding tons of it or getting it highly, highly concentrated. If you're taking caffeine in a pill form or anhydrous caffeine or no dose, potentially that could be a mild diuretic, like causing you to lose more fluid. Um, alcohol, if you go to Finland, they do it all the time, but I would say they have a lot of experience with it too, and I wouldn't recommend it per se. Sure. Uh, us Americans did not fare so well. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, and then salt, you definitely probably want to increase sodium with fluid. So you're going to lose electrolytes. I mean, electrolyte you're going to lose is going to be sodium. Yeah. So most people, if they're following a whole food diet, not eating a lot of processed food, Paradoxically, they could probably do better with more sodium actually overall, as long as they're not salt sensitive hypertensive. Mm -hmm. If your diet's a floating trash bin of fire and you eat whatever, 
yeah, you probably don't need any more sodium. Right. So I would say it depends. Most of those people just need to drink water. Yeah, I, I do not recommend alcohol with the sauna. <laughs> and I kind of look at it as more of a spiritual and mystical experience for me personally. And so I, if your normal like morning practice is to have a cup of coffee and that's when you want to use the sauna, I don't think you're going to notice anything different from using the caffeine and the coffee. So if you're drinking a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, a cup of cacao, whatever it is, bring it in the sauna with you. Don't spill it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think no problem. Uh, with salt and with water, I personally don't bring either into the sauna with me. What I found in a Finnish sauna, which are really hot, mm -hmm. for me personally, in order to get myself to stay in for 22 minutes, which is what I was trying to do two times in a row, I needed water so I could drink something cool mm -hmm. while, the, while I was feeling so uncomfortably hot. Mm -hmm. And so I would drink then an entire water bottle, you know, a half liter of water or quarter liter of water, whichever it was, mm -hmm. all at once and cool down towards the end of the session to let me stay in those three minutes longer. Mm -hmm. And then I would come back in and not have any water. I would shower off after and then drink water. And my current practice is I don't bring any fluids in with me mm -hmm. unless it's a cup of cacao because it's in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I will drink the water after I shower when I get out. So that's to me a key practice is you are sweating out all these toxins. Mm -hmm. You really want to take a shower after the sauna to wash them off and not put them into your clothing and reabsorb them later. So after my shower of washing off those toxins, then I'll get extra water. Mm -hmm. And my water has, like, I make a sea salt solution mm -hmm. and I put a tablespoon into a gallon of water and that's my normal drinking water. So I'm getting some salt from that water that I drink to replenish my uh, electrolytes. Both of you have been involved in our Point Retreats Fire and Ice Retreat, which is like such an awesome event. And we're going to be having that again in March. And the premise of that is really around like these temperature extremes and how to use them for um, our health benefit, right? So as a nurse, as we have cut these ice holes in some pretty extreme conditions that I would say even people <laughs> who I know are teaching like cold plunging courses are like, you did what? And I'm chainsaws. like, yeah, chainsaws, minus <laughs> 20, eight hours. You know, it's it's pretty intense. I'd say some of the things that we do up there, although we certainly have the goal of always keeping everyone as safe, um, safety in mind. But a question I get as a nurse a lot is, you know, do you have an AED down by your cold plunge, you know, hole in the lake? And I'm always like, no, we don't. Um, and fortunately, we've never needed that. And I think it's very rare that you would not to say we don't look at certain medical conditions and, you know, put some cautions around it. But the irony in it to me is that we also use thera therapeutic hypothermia in the exact condition that people are worried is going to happen in the ice hole and cardiac arrest. And I was just reading a study last night with a non-shockable rhythm of asystole is where they had some of the best outcomes in this one particular study around using therapeutic hypothermia mm. in those who've had an acute myocardial infarction with no shockable rhythm. Mm. Those people who had their, their cardiac tissue and their body temperature lowered to 93 degrees Fahrenheit had the best outcomes. Hmm. So as a lot of things in, in the world, the reason I'm bringing this up is it's so interesting that the thing we fear or worry about can also be the thing that we use to treat some of the most extreme medical conditions. Can you just talk to me a little bit about kind of this newer practice of cold therapy? I'll start with you, Mike. Yeah, it's been pretty interesting to kind of watch it. Like when you were talking about the cardiac stuff, um, years ago, I took a whole cardiac physiology class at the University of Minnesota and then one of the main guys was teaching it was uh, Paul Ozio. Mm -hmm. 
And so in his free time, he was uh, in the anesthesia program, but he was mainly doing cardiac research. Mm -hmm. He looked at uh, people who fell overboard in Lake Superior, got hypothermia and was seeing all these cardiac changes. Mm -hmm. And so he did some of the very early research thinking that exactly what you were saying, if they have an infarct or an issue, can we cool them to try to minimize some of that um, damage? Mm -hmm. um, so I find that it's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, I guess I got into it. I first saw it five years ago and was like, I don't know, I got to try this just to see what's going on. I tried it a few times. And I was like, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then right before COVID, I ended up buying a 15.6 uh, cubic freezer. Uh, mental note, if you go to Home Depot and you crawl in their freezers in the store, like they really frown on that. Like, <laughs> don't do that. I might have. Um, so I wanted to make sure I fit before I'm going to spend $500 on a freezer. Do they politely <laughs> ask you to leave the store? Yeah, I kind of had to come back. Okay. But so I sealed it all off, you know, kind of made my own, my home version. Yeah. And so I started playing around with that in like, right in the start of like 2020. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have never guessed it would be this popular yeah um but it it's one of those things where there's definitely a lot of potential to it which we'll discuss mm -hmm. um a lot of stuff's probably been a little bit overhyped like most things that become trends but um yeah i think there's a lot of very legitimate benefits to it sure okay thanks mike thaddeus well so i think ancient humans would have experienced cold and we talked about that at the beginning that we rarely experience anything outside room temperature mm -hmm. And we do have these ancient pathways that are never turned on in our bodies. And I think, as Mike said, we're at the infancy of discovering what happens when we turn them on mm -hmm. and how much cold it takes to turn them on. So the pathways are in, number one, our mitochondria. The mitochondria make energy. Everyone's like, oh, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. It makes energy. It's what makes us be able to move around. It gives every one of our cells energy. And the way we get the energy is by eating food. What most people don't know is the mitochondria can switch from making energy to making heat and it's called uncoupling. Mm -hmm. And that's what's called like thermogenesis, mm -hmm. thermo heat and genesis, like creation of heat. Mm -hmm. The body can create heat from the mitochondria and not energy. And that is unique. Mm -hmm. Most people either haven't been aware of that or we don't know how to turn it on in the past. And it's turned on by getting cold enough to utilize fat in your body to generate heat from the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And when you generate heat called like non-shivering or even shivering thermogenesis, heat creation, you create that brown fat, that healthier mm -hmm. body fat. So I think part of the draw of doing cold therapy is you're reducing inflammation when you're in that cold water mm -hmm. and you're opening these ancient pathways that have health benefits that are like barely studied. Okay. And so we're only learning now, like, how much of a benefit is it? What I know personally is like, when I do this cold adaptation, just think about somebody from Florida. Mm -hmm. It's 75 degrees there right now. Bring them here and have them walk with you to your car at a restaurant and see how cold they get. Mm -hmm. And look at them on the beach in Florida when it's 65 degrees with a parka and a hat, mm -hmm. and we can be on the beach with no shirt and shorts. There's something to adapting to the cold. Mm -hmm. So my own experience is that when I do these practices, I can be in a t-shirt 
and shovel my driveway at zero degrees and not feel like I'm really stressed and freezing cold mm -hmm. and be really relaxed and comfortable. So all winter long, when my colleagues have to put heaters under their desks mm -hmm. and cover themselves with a shawl because they're really cold, even though it's 75 degrees in, in the office, I feel great. Yeah. And I feel great walking to my car when it's blowing wind and five degrees below zero. Mm -hmm. So cold adaptation to me is real. There's a benefit and the health benefits, like one of the, we're studying, like as Mike can probably talk about, like norepinephrine release and all the things that that hormone and compound can do. And it's a chemical and a hormone. Like it does two things with multiple attributes in the body. The, we're at the, so at the beginning of studying this. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of like, is a 30 second dip in an ice hole enough or do you need to do cold swimming laps mm -hmm. like 10 minutes a day? Right. And I think what we found is like there's some studies showing 20 seconds of cold gives you a benefit. So, Dr. Mike, can I ask you in terms of like that whole shiver effect, how do you like what's that line between shivering and hypothermia? And then would you say to someone who's really wanting to you know, kind of like jumpstart their metabolic process. Would you ever recommend shivering versus say a, a different exercise routine? So could you induce shivering for fat loss? The literature right now is pretty split. Okay. Um, I would say it's possible, but the amount of time you would need to spend doing that, I could only find one study that looked at, I think putting people in a 40 degree room for an hour and a half in a t-shirt and shorts and they did see some big benefit with that. There's anecdotal reports of people doing shivering and that seems to help. Mm -hmm. um, but from what I've calculated, you would have to shiver for many, many minutes, if not half an hour, right. uh, probably quite a while to have an effect. Okay. Um, in terms of risk of hypothermia, as long as you're in a safe environment, you can get in, you can get out. Mm -hmm. Your risk of hypothermia is actually relatively low. Mm. Now the caveat to that is, You'll look and you'll see like, you know, plane lands in cold water, you know, several people drown within minutes. Mm -hmm. And at first read that and I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like you're, you could be in the coldest water possible. You're not going to get hypothermia within two minutes. Right. But what happens is they're not used to the water. They hit and the water hits their skin and their face and they have a gas reflex where they, <gasps> they inhale and their face was in the water. Okay. So they actually drown because they inhaled water because of that reflex. They weren't accustomed or their face was under the water at that time. Sure. So you'll see it split where a lot of people unfortunately die right away. And then many, sometimes hours later, people would die of hypothermia. Yeah. The other thing you have to watch out for is like we were talking about before we started, you can lose function of your limbs. Mm -hmm. So you may not be able to get safely out or to get to where you need to go. And can you give us like a good moderate dose time? I'm actually like hyper conservative with it. So when I started, I would have people start at 50 degrees if you can control temperature and time and then just slowly work up to five or six minutes. And that five or six minutes should still be pretty damn easy. Yeah. Once you hit six minutes, drop it to 48. Okay. Start again at 30 to 60 seconds. I like going up to your chin to about here if you can. Sometimes leave your hands or your feet out if it's too too uncomfortable. Okay. And then just take your time. Yeah. Um, I've done an experiment multiple times where I've done the slow and steady approach. Mm -hmm. It took me like a year and a half to get down to like 38, 40 degrees where I could hang out for like five to six minutes pretty easily. It wasn't really that hard. Yeah. But then I've gone away and then I haven't done it for two or three months. Mm -hmm. I come back and I thought, oh, I've done this before. I'm going to start at 40 degrees and just work my way up. Mm -hmm. And it was much harder. Mm 
Mm. Like I couldn't get past like a couple minutes where it was still easy. I could still do it if someone came in and said, "Hey, this, you know, let's let's do five minutes." I'm like, "Yeah, I can I can get through it." Right. But it wasn't easy. Yeah. So I think making it pretty easy and then just taking your time. So can I also ask, you know, in regards to somebody who might say have like um, neuropathy or Raynaud's, you know, what kind of parameters would you give them in terms of if they're like, but I really want to try CT therapy, what would you recommend? I don't know. You might have more information on this. I've only worked with a couple of people who've had it. And I'm like hyper conservative because I would tell them my bias is I want you to get in and right before you have symptoms, I actually want you to be out. Okay. So I want to try to sneak an adaptation in, but I don't want to cross over where all of a sudden your hands look like they turn blue. Gotcha. Okay. Anecdotally, it's only been like one or two people, but both of them have reported that they felt a lot better. Sure. Right. Sure. And there is some plausible theories that that may change that sort of local reaction to the blood flow. Right. I don't know if you've had any more experience with that. Well, so Raynaud's is like, the capillaries in your extremities seize closed right. and they won't open. So you get no blood flow to your extremities. Um, so that's like your fingers and your toes and your feet. And it typically happens when your core gets cold. Mm -hmm. People with Raynaud's will have that seizure happen in their blood capillaries. Mm -hmm. And then they get no blood flow for sometimes hours. Mm -hmm. And that's not good for your um, the nutrition of those cells. Mm -hmm. You can probably get some cell death and lots of damage. So when you're doing CT, which is cold thermogenesis or cold mm -hmm. therapy, and you're getting cold on purpose, people with Raynaud's, where they have that happen just normally in the house, mm -hmm. can have a massive reaction to that. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people, and I don't have it happen in the cold plunge. To me, it happens after I put all my clothes back on and start trying to warm my body back up. Mm -hmm. That's when everything seizes and gets really cold. Mm -hmm. And that's when I like to go right in the sauna and try to get everything flowing again. Mm -hmm. It brings up a point of, you know, if you're wanting to use um, CT therapy or sauna therapy and you have any kind of medical condition, it is really important to include your medical team and work with someone who's an expert in the area and has done the research and, and guided um, people through this. The tricky part is there's there's more research, to the best of my knowledge, around sauna um, therapy and sauna you know benefits, health benefits around sauna therapy than CT. But there is a study out of Nether the Netherlands where they took 16 men, I think they were like 30 to 40 years of age and of relatively good con health condition and fit. Um, and they measured all of their inflammatory markers. I think after 16 weeks of very intentional and um, you know, well-planned out CT exposure and all of their inflammatory markers dropped significantly. So, which was really interesting, but around both of these practices, you know, the big studies that produce big results just are harder to initiate and come by for a lot of reasons. But if you could, either one of you who both, you know, love to look at research and are involved in creating research projects and studies, if you could create any kind of research project or study around sauna therapy or CT therapy, what would it be? For me, I think the question that I wonder the most about would be cold therapy and its effect on muscle mass. And is that really an inflammation-mediated response, mm -hmm. right? So the literature ironically shows that cryotherapy appears to affect inflammation better. Mm. There are studies showing cold water immersion can affect inflammation in different pathologies. In healthy athletes doing an exercise program, mm. yeah, most of the data right now that I've read would say probably not. Mm. Uh, one study from the Netherlands, which is from Van Loon's lab, uh, Cass Fuchs, I think, did the study. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the TNF Alpha IL-6 like did not change with cold water immersion. Okay. They used one leg neutral. Mm -hmm. They put the other leg in 20 minutes of cold water at 50, no, 46 degrees immediately after a strength training session. Mm -hmm. And they did see that muscle protein synthesis, how well you can take amino acids, mm -hmm. shove them into muscle tissue to make it recover better, that that process was turned down. Hmm. Uh, Jonathan Peake's lab has looked at the size of the little individual muscle cells themselves, mm -hmm. has seen cold water immersion done immediately after, the cells are smaller. Mm -hmm. um, however, the DEXA numbers, so when we look at whole body, didn't change. So we've got a lot of mechanistic data that shows that, yeah, it may not be best if you're trying to add muscle mass, performance is mixed, but I spent forever, like a year and a half, like reading all the studies, trying to figure out. So to the average person who's listening and says, okay, I'm training real hard. I know muscle is a good thing, whether I'm a guy or a female, doesn't matter. Um, and I want to do cold water immersion immediately after training, mm -hmm. like in the real world, like how much of muscle mass is this costing me? Mm -hmm. And there's no answer to that. Mm -hmm. It could be 50%, 100%, 90%. My guess, which I'm just throwing darts at a board is yeah. maybe 20%, but the studies are only six to eight weeks. So we don't know after you remove that stimulus, does the body kind of hypercompensate and get that back? Sure. Does it not? Is it just lost? And it can't so, bend. It would take a whole nother set of, you know, training program to get right, it back. Right. Yeah. And to do those studies, it's a monster pain in the ass to do because right. you have to do a training study. Most of the time you've got to do some type of infusion to measure muscle protein synthesis. There's only like five places in the U.S. that'll do that. Mm -hmm. Probably a dozen, if that, in the entire world. Mm -hmm. But it would be cool to do that and to look at all the mechanisms and see in the real world, like what, how much is that really costing you? Mm -hmm. And what is the exact mechanism? Mm -hmm. uh, last point, one other study showed that it may alter the satellite cell activation in the healing response. So the satellite cells kind of hang out in the end of the muscle cell. They come in and they help repair it. One study showed that cold water immersion caused them to not be as active. Mm -hmm. So maybe that repair process wasn't occurring as much. Hmm. Um, Interesting. But that, again, is only for muscle mass. Performance yeah. is like yeah. all across the map. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just, if I can kind of pick your expert brain on this too, why does muscle mass matter? Because I think a lot of people will go, yeah. well, I don't care if I'm like big buff and fit. But it has implications far beyond that. So if you can just quick add in why it's like, why that's so intriguing to you, for you. Yeah, so like the top three things for longevity. So VO2 max, your aerobic performance, grip strength, and then lower body muscle mass or strength. They're kind of tied together. Um, a lot of people will have a high risk of falling over, right? So they don't have the muscle mass, the strength to correct themselves after a fall. The more muscle mass you have, the better your just metabolism is going to run. People as they age, especially if they don't do strength training, they're going to start losing a lot of muscle mass very mm -hmm. fast. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cost them a lot of function, both physical function and metabolic health. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that, you know, losing 20% or there's going to be a bunch of people running around doing 20 minutes of cold uh, exposure right after it. Right. I think for athletes, help, yeah, it gives us some insight. But to me, it's more interesting because it tells us more on that mechanism of what's actually regulating it, what's going on. Right. So if we find something that either stops it or doesn't it, maybe there's something we can take that data then to extrapolate it to other populations and go from there. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Mike. That's a great study. I yeah, hope yeah. it, gets, well, I hope it happens someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thaddeus? So <clears throat> I like the, the studies that in general tell me if I do cold th thermogenesis mm -hmm. and make myself uncomfortable for a little bit each week and or I do sauna, 
-hmm. Is there a benefit to my quality of life, my longevity, or my health span? Mm -hmm. The longer I live, the healthier I stay. If there's a benefit to one of those three things, like yeah. I like generalities. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't really want to know the specifics and like all the little mechanisms. But if you say I have to get uncomfortable for five minutes, three times a week and I'll be happier, I'm in. So yeah. I like really general studies that just say like, do this and you'll live longer or do this and you'll be a happier person mm -hmm. of all the studies that have been done. Like mm -hmm. I like those big general studies that look at lots of data. It's hard to make a study control every aspect of the person's mentality, the diet they had the night before, like all that is so hard to control. Right. So I just like really general studies that just say like, we know this is good. So I just want to say thank you to you, Thaddeus, and to you, Dr. Mike, thank for you. being part of this podcast. You both have such a wealth of wisdom and expertise in this area and so many others. And just the time that you've taken with us today to graciously share your wisdom with um, the people that will be listening, those that are sitting here in front of us, just thank you to both of you. I want to say a special thank you to everyone at Self-Esteem Brands, the parent company of Anytime Fitness, Waxing the City, Bar Method, Stronger You Nutrition, and Base Camp Fitness. We are grateful for the recording space and support you have provided to our podcast platform and team. You are a true example of what it means to rebel and be well. You can learn more about self-esteem brands via the link shared in the show notes below. We appreciate and savor every sip of Dry Farm Wines during our podcast conversations and every event at The Point Retreats. As a health and wellness platform, we are grateful to have a pure and unique wine that is free of sugar and additives, grown on small family farms, and brings a bright and soulful and vibrant glass of wine to share with the community we love. Cheers to our Dry Farm wine friends and family. You can learn more and order your own bottles of Dry Farm wine by clicking the link provided in the show notes below. That simple and serene moment when we glide across the lake at the point retreats on our Paddle North paddleboard is one of the most cherished moments. It's a gift when we and our guests blend into nature and lose track of time and space as we soar across the pristine whitefish chain of lakes. Thank you Paddle North for being our preferred Minnesota-based brand and company. We honor every memorable paddle that brings great clarity and balance. Click on the link provided in the show notes below to see all the incredible lake gear available with Paddle North. The Point Retreats and Rentals is situated roughly 30 minutes outside Brainerd, Minnesota. The property's private peninsula boasts over 1,500 feet of stunning shoreline spanning three lakes on the whitefish chain of lakes. The Point property is owned by two purpose-driven leaders who share a strong desire to lead others to optimal health and well-being. Our team believes in proactive, modern-day health shifting our mindsets to valuing quality of life in the same capacity as we value quantity of life. We aim for every experience at the point to enhance and deepen your whole being health by providing many opportunities for well care during your stay. Whether you need time to renew, reset, or reconnect, we have a space that can host your family, group, or team. Click on the show notes below to find out more about the point retreats and the point rentals.